Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, Unpacking the Book of Enoch. The first 36 chapters are all about the mess before the flood and how it just corrupts and destroys people and produces rampant depravity on the earth. And so Enoch, since it's an apocalyptic piece of literature, says, you want to know why God needs to sort of bring everything to a head and and just be done with it? Well, let's talk about that. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Dr. Michael Heiser is standing by to discuss the Book of Enoch. Although not part of scripture, it's a very influential ancient text nonetheless, one that certainly influenced the early church and one that continues to intrigue readers to this day, including those of us interested in the UFO ET and alien abduction phenomena. Dr. Michael Heiser received his PhD in Hebrew, Bible, and ancient Semitic languages from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's currently academic editor for Logos Bible Software, a company that creates ancient language research software and digital resources for studying the ancient and biblical world. Michael is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Institute for Biblical Research, the International Organization for Septuagint and Cognate Studies, the American Academy of Religion, and the Evangelical Theological Society. In 2005, Michael was named by Fate Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in ufology. His latest book is A Companion to the Book of Enoch, A Reader's Commentary, Volume 1, The Book 
of Watchers. Dr. Michael Heiser, how are you? Great. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. One of the things I learned from your book, A Companion to the Book of Enoch, is that there were actually three books of Enoch. So when we're talking about the one we're most familiar with, the Book of Enoch, which one are we talking about? It's the one that scholars and academics would refer to as First Enoch. And as you note, there are three. So logically, Second Enoch and Third Enoch, those are not what is popularly known as the Book of Enoch. That would be First Enoch. And when was, when do we believe the first Enoch was written? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the textual evidence gets as old as the 3rd century B.C. or B.C.E., so the, the, the 200s B.C.E., and that, that evidence is known from among the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are some Aramaic fragments of the book that go back that far, but not all of the book. Uh, is witnessed uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those are just little scraps and fragments. There's a much larger portion uh, in Greek material. The, the manuscripts for that are a little bit later. And then the whole book only exists in Ethiopic, which is, you know, old uh, Ge'ez is the language. You know, people today, when they think of Ethiopia and uh, their language, they would think of Amharic. Uh, the script, you know, looks the same, but you know, languages evolved, uh, and they did there as well. That the whole book is only known in any manuscript, you know, in its entirety, all 108 chapters, in that language, and it's really late. You know, you're talking 10th, 11th century A.D. for the entirety of the book, but fragments of it do go back to the third century B.C. And it's it's considered composite, meaning what? Multiple authors. Yeah, if if you you know if you pick up the the my handbook, you know the the companion or some other you know read some other article from maybe a an academic dictionary, a specialty dictionary like of Second Temple Jewish literature, you'll find that Enoch is broken up into a number of books itself. And again, we're talking about First Enoch. So those books, those sections, really are considered by most scholars to have been written by different hands at different times. You know, not, not widely variant in terms of times, maybe a you know, couple centuries, but nevertheless, uh, different hands. All right, so let's talk a little about, a bit about Enoch, um, the, uh, the son of Jared, the father of Methuselah, I believe, the, was it the great-grandfather of Noah? Uh, what what else do we know about Enoch? Well, if we're talking about biblical material, not a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, Enoch, basically, you know, we know him biblically from Genesis chapter 5, which is a genealogy. Uh, and really, there's only a couple of verses, Genesis 5, 21 through 24. And, you know, he fathered Methuselah, got that. Uh, then we're just told he walked with God. Uh, after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years, has other kids, he lives to 365, but doesn't die in the biblical account. God essentially takes him, you know, to his own presence. And so Enoch is one of two figures that, um, according to the Bible, never actually die. And so that that becomes a factor in how they're looked at by those two figures. The other one is Elijah, you know, how they're they're looked at 
by, you know, generations within Judaism much later, you know, they, they, they begin to play a role in things like end times and eschatology and other sort of supernatural activities that God is, is doing or is going to do because they never, you know, meet a, never meet death, you know, in a normal uh, means in terms of what we know, but that's pretty much it. Now, there's a lot we can know uh, about this figure, or at least suspect, when we start to get into comparative literature, both with Genesis 5 and then, of course, uh, the, the, the traditions, the Jewish traditions that go into a book like, you know, First Enoch. So if you ask a first century person, what do we know about Enoch, their list is going to be a whole lot bigger than what I just gave you, uh, because they're, they're thinking, uh, they're casting a bit wider of a net than, you know, just a few verses in Genesis 5. And um, why is the book of Enoch, or the, any of the books of Enoch, n- um, not part of Scripture? At what point was it decided that they would not be part of, uh, you know, the Old Testament? Yeah, this is an interesting question because the the general answer, not just for Enoch, but for other books, uh, your your listeners might be familiar with. You know, if you think about the Bible, there's there's a Protestant Bible that includes you know a, a certain number of books. But if you pull a Catholic Bible off a shelf or in a bookstore, that Catholic Bible will have more Old Testament books than the Protestant Bible does. And the reason for that is because in between what the Bible refers to as testaments. There's the Old Testament, which is basically the story of Israel, ancient Israel, the Hebrews, and then the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus and the apostles. Well, in between those two historical periods where one ends and the other begins, you've got about 500 years. It's referred to logically as the intertestamental period. And there are books being written uh, by people in the Jewish community in that in-between time. And some of those books begin to sort of bubble up and, and, and get consideration by different communities. And that's a key thought, different communities, because not everybody agrees. They get some consideration by different communities as being sacred, having sacred status. And ultimately, the reason why the Catholic Old Testament, just to begin our discussion here, is bigger than the Protestant, actually has to, a lot to do with the translation of the Old Testament into Greek and the invention of the codex, or what we would think of as the book. Because when that was actually invented, somebody got the bright idea to take a scroll and slice it up into sections and stack them and then sew, on, you know, sew them on one end so you could flip the pages and actually use you know, both sides of a page. And somebody had to invent that. When they did that, and they created Bibles, Old and New Testament, in Greek, and they're using the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they include a lot of these other books, and the early church inherits the codex. And since the early church was essentially, you know, becomes known as the Catholic Church, that's why the Catholic Church has those extra books. But the Protestants don't. And here was their litmus test. So that's a roundabout way of, of helping your, your listeners understand why this becomes an issue. Typically, the deciding factor was, is this book that some people say should be part of the Old Testament, whether it's Enoch or something else. Is it witnessed? Do we have manuscript evidence for it in Hebrew? Because the assumption was, if this is an Old Testament book, if this is a book that arises from within 
the Jewish community that they would consider sacred, they themselves use this as a test. And so this is why Protestants later used it. Is the book written in Hebrew? And Enoch, there is no evidence for Hebrew Enoch. You know, it, it may have been, but we don't have a single manuscript fragment, you know, even, even something as big as your thumbnail for Enoch in Hebrew. And that's the same way with a lot of other books. And we have to recall that in the intertestamental period, when these other Jewish writers were writing, they wrote in Greek because of Alexander the Great, Hellenism. The whole world was Hellenistic, Hellenized. Everybody wrote in Greek. And so this became a test. You know, we, we're not going to assign this credibility that goes all the way back to the Old Testament prophets unless it was written in Hebrew. And that's why. Now, it gets complicated, though, because there was one Jewish sect that did accept it, despite that, <laughs> despite that criterion. And that was the sect that occupied the settlement we now know as Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They do cite Enoch, and again, this is where these fragments, Aramaic fragments, were discovered, but they cite Enoch, they quote it in other books that they're writing, with the same formulaic language as they do sacred texts from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible. So that tells you that they looked at Enoch as, as being on the same level. They wrote a commentary on Enoch. They only wrote commentaries on biblical books, but yet Enoch exists in a commentary. You know, so they, they do things like this that telegraph, that they looked at this one a little bit differently. And it's not the only one. They do it for something called the Temple Scroll that, that they produce. They do it for the Book of Jubilees. But it's a real small list, and Enoch is among that list. And, and so despite the fact that there's no Hebrew evidence for the book, at least one Jewish group, and they were the only ones as far as we know, thought, that Enoch should be placed within their canon, within their collection of sacred books. And what about its reception by the early Christian church? Mm -hmm. Yeah, early Christians, you know, they, they wouldn't have been aware of, you know, hey, the, the guys at Qumran over there think this, and so we ought to think that. that. That wasn't specifically why Enoch became part of the discussion, although they would not have been unaware, early church you know, leaders would not have been unaware of the importance of Enoch just generally. It was a widely read book, and there were books like this, you know, that were so well known in the community that in, in Enoch's case, there were a handful of early church thinkers and writers that thought it should be, again, in the Old Testament, it should be in, in, in the list of sacred books. Uh, you know, Irenaeus was one of these, Tertullian was another, there's something called the Epistle of Barnabas that quotes it as scripture. Again, these are early Christian writings um, among church leaders in the first few centuries after the apostolic period, uh, you know, second century, third century AD. And so it was an item of discussion. Now, eventually, you know, even the even one of the church fathers, I believe it's Tertullian, you know, actually wrote toward the end of his life, it's like, hey, I'm the only one still alive out here defending this thing. So I guess I was wrong. You know, they 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 believed, you know, this was their theology that if we're all believers here, we all have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to move in the mass of the believing community to make the right decision. And apparently they did. Apparently he did, apparently they did, and I'm I you know, I'm just going to give it up. And so he does, you know, but there were, there were, again, some of these discussions and part of the reason as well, it wasn't just the, the, the wideness, you know, the, of, 
of the knowledge of the book and that it was considered important for certain points of theology. But the New Testament does quote it at least once. Uh, it alludes to it, to its content, a number of other times. And so that, you know, sort of raised the bar as far as the discussion. And it, that's actually a, a bit of a misleading criterion that we can talk about, if you like, because um, the, the Old and New Testament quotes lots of things that nobody in either community is going to consider sacred. Things like, you know, the Old Testament writers quoting the Baal cycle. Well, they, they do that, but nobody thought that was, you know, should be in there. But, you know, Enoch was a little bit different, um, again, for, for these other reasons. Right. And was it ever the the book, rather, was it ever the subject of conversation at, let's say, any of the, the ecumenical councils? No, not, not that I'm aware of. I've never come across anything like that. Um, typically, you know, there, there's, there's kind of a mythology, you know, out there in the, in the wonderful world of, of the Internet. Uh, about how you know, Constantine at the Council of Nicaea decided what was in the New Testament and handed down, you know, uh, the verdict of, you know, get rid of this or that gospel, you know, like the, the Gnostic gospels and things like that. Again, I, I call it a myth because it is, because they actually took notes at the conference. And, and we have the list of things they decided, you know, they discussed and they decided. And the content of the Bible is not anywhere in their notes. Now, in an indirect way, that ecumenical council was influential in regard to the New Testament because I'll, I'll just you know put it you know put it this way: Constantine, and he wasn't alone here, was kind of sick of of the whole discussion. You know, he, they everybody was aware that there was this this discussion going on of well, wh- which books you know are in our Bible, and and he's like, look, guys, you you need to fix this, and he actually he actually ordered them. He said. I want 50 copies of the New Testament, okay, you know, on my desk, you know, in X number of months. And then he takes off. And, and, it, and what it does is it forces their hand. They're looking around. It's like, boy, we're in trouble now. I mean, we, we actually, like, have to make decisions because we got to decide and then we got to make copies and we got to hand them in. We got to hand in our homework or we're in big trouble. How late is Kinko's open again? Yeah, really. <laughs> Can we actually pull this off? And so what they did, I mean, there, there had been a long discussion within the believing community about, again, we're talking about the New Testament here. So Enoch wasn't really part of this discussion. But, the, you know, they, they had, you know, beaten this around for a couple of centuries. And there were, there were writers, you know, who had produced lists, you know, of, of things that were, they, they, they thought should be considered authoritative. They also made list of things that, that they thought should never, you know, be in there and, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, you could, you know, these scholars nowadays have collected their sermons and their writings. So we know what they quote from and what they don't quote from. And, you know, a couple centuries in all of the books in the New Testament we have now are quoted as, you know, as authoritative scripture in, by some church father somewhere in, in a couple centuries in. So there was a, there was kind of a consciousness, a sense of what, you know, we should call, you know, essentially our New Testament. But nobody had ever actually, like, forced the decision until Constantine demands 50 copies for circulation in the empire. It's like, oh, boy, you know, the, the game's up here. And so what they did was they, they went around and, and, and they, they had, again, renewed the discussion. And they decided, hey, what's the most pragmatic thing to do here? What are the books that nobody 
in the wider Christian orbit that nobody would disagree with. In other words, what, what's the list of books that everybody would say, yeah, that's a winner. Okay, that, that, one, that one deserves recognition. And that's what they did. And that's what we have in our New Testament. So they, they, they went with a minimalist approach to the problem, you know, decided that, made the copies, handed in their homework on time and, and passed the class, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's essentially what they did, you know, but, but Enoch was part of a, a similar but different discussion because of its Old Testament uh, orientation. And again, the, the church fathers had a few, you know, there were a few defenders there, but ultimately the early church, you know, made their decisions based on, you know, is it witnessed in Hebrew? Does the, does the early Jewish community, you know, this is their criterion, so we ought to use this, we ought to look at it this way. But, you know, they made, you know, some people would call it a mistake, uh, again. When, when, the, when the codex was invented, then they, they said, okay, we've got our Old Testament, we translated it into Greek, because everybody can read Greek, you know, because a lot of the people in the church were not Jewish. So we got that, got the New Testament, but, you know, there's these other books that people really like. So, like, let's throw them in the codex. This is a fancy schmancy new invention here, and we love it. You know, it's easy to carry. You know, it just it, you can fit X number of pages in this thing before it gets too heavy. And they actually did that. And, and because they made that decision, again, we have this Protestant Catholic, and, and also we'll throw in Eastern Orthodox, too. They're part of this, too. But your, your Bible essentially was dependent on what codex do you have? <laughs> you know, like what's in that thing? You know, right. when you open it up, what's in the table of contents? Oh, okay. And, and they weren't all the same. So even though they had an intellectual agreement as to what was Old Testament, what was New Testament, you still had these other books and they got inherited by the early church and they became part of, you know, sort of the intellectual and spiritual life of the, the earliest, you know, widest Christian community, you know, when Christianity became legal, which became the Roman Catholic Church. And that's why their, their Old Testament's different than the Protestants. You know, when you have Luther and Calvin and, and those guys, again, not only, I mean, there, there, there has to be a little bit of, well, we're not Catholics, so we're going to, you know, throw this stuff out. There has to be a little bit of that. But ultimately, if, if you look in their writings, they're saying, look, we're going to go back to the old standard is it witnessed in Hebrew? If it's not, we're not going to bother. So they, they sort of aligned themselves with the, the earliest you know, Jewish way of looking at the Old Testament. So let's, let's get into the, to the, the contents of the Book of Enoch and your Reader's Commentary, Volume 1, The Book of the Watchers. It's, uh, the Book of Enoch is considered apocalyptic literature. Uh, I'm pretty sure I know what we mean by that, but just uh, maybe explain a little bit further. What do we mean by apocalyptic literature? Yeah, apocalyptic literature is basically about the end of days. So, I mean, if you open up the Book of Enoch and start reading, you're going to get hit with that in chapter one. It's, It's the ultimate judgment of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous and, you know, the world's coming to an end. So an apocalypse is about the end of days or, you know, ultimate eschatological end time salvation. And, and because of that, because it transcends sort of the current time, you know, and, and place of, of normal human life, because it's projected into the future, it becomes an intimate part of the supernatural domain. Again, also because God is the one, you know, pulling the levers and pushing the buttons and, and push, you know, getting the plan done here. 
it involves apocalyptic literature involves a heavy dose of supernatural content, specifically supernatural beings, on both on, on you know good guys and bad guys. And in the case of Enoch, since it's concerned with the end of days and hey, the end's coming and you know it, it's going to hit the fan real soon here, and the wicked are going to get judged and the righteous are going to be vindicated, it raises the question very early: How do we get in this mess in the first place? And so the question of the nature of evil and, and the depravity and corruption of humanity, get, you know, you get right into it early in the book. And that's a big, big part of apocalyptic literature because there has to be an explanation for why everything's ending. You know, why would God do this? And the answer is you know, there's just a lot of evil. So when, it, when they take that turn, Enoch, the first 36 chapters are known as the Book of the Watchers because in Second Temple Jewish thought— if you if you asked a if you asked the average Christian today, you know the ch- an average churchgoer, hey, why is the world such a mess? They're going to say something like, "Well, that's because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, you know, the fall." You know, don't you read the Bible, Mike? You dunderhead. You know, I mean, this is this should be obvious. Well, if you asked a first century Jew, somebody living during Jesus' day, that's not the answer you would get. The answer you would get is, well, there's kind of three reasons why. The world is such a mess. Now, the first one was a rebellion, both on the supernatural side, you know, the serpent figure, and then the human side, Adam and Eve. So that that's that starts you know the problems on Earth. But then you've got what happens just before the flood with Genesis six. Okay, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they you know they they cohabit with the daughters of men. They produce Nephilim. And the Nephilim are bad enough because they're, they're just awful. And they're, you know, rampant and killing everybody and all this sort of stuff. But in the, according to the Book of Enoch, and Enoch's not alone here, lots of other books like it, Book of the Giants, Genesis Apocryphon, I mean, a whole, whole grocery list of books. When you killed one of the giants, the disembodied spirit of the giant, because half of it was a supernatural being, became what would later become known as a demon. Okay, and so you 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 have sort of a, a a double fallout from Genesis six, and you really even a triple fallout because part of the story is, and this goes back to the ancient Mesopotamian context for for Genesis six, which is also the context for what Enoch's writing, and that is these supernatural beings not only produce these weird offspring that are just awful, but they also teach humans certain things that one civilization would think is great like the Babylonians, but another civilization like Israel would think is just terrible because it's things like astrology, idolatry, the arts of seduction, the arts of warfare, bloodshed, you know, violence. You know, a, a Babylonian would say, well, this is why we're great. We're just on top of the world. There's no civilization greater than we are. Whereas the other civilizations would say, this is why you guys stink. And we don't want to be like you because, because this violence is terrible. You know, we, promiscuity is awful because it destabilizes, you know, our, our families and our homes. This is self-destructive behavior. Idolatry is terrible because we should have a relationship with the true God, not, not these other supernatural beings that really hate us, but, but won't tell us that, you know, they market themselves so well. So you have this supernatural conflict emerging out of this Genesis six thing. So you got Nephilim, you've got, you know, basically teaching humans how to more effectively destroy themselves, and you get demons out of it. And then there's a third rebellion event that's something that happens at the Tower of Babel to where God, in the biblical story, divorces humanity. He's had enough. He gets rid of 
his relate he severs his relationship with all humans and then he decides to start Israel he decides to start over but that leaves the whole world in chaos other than Yahweh's own people and that's why the rest of the Bible is Yahweh against the other gods because he appoints the nations that he divorced he puts them under the authority of other supernatural beings and that goes really terribly so it's Yahweh against the gods it's Israel against the nations so the whole world is a mess but what the Book of the Watchers focuses on is the middle one, is the Genesis 6 stuff, the stuff that happens before the flood. And they're called Watchers because that's, that's Enoch's sort of favorite term and other you know, intertestamental Jewish books. You'll see the term a lot. That's their term for these supernatural sons of God of Genesis 6. Uh, watcher is a biblical term, though. It, it shows up four times in the Bible of a, of a supernatural being. But it's Enoch's favorite term. So the first 36 chapters are all about the mess before the flood and how it just corrupts and destroys people and produces rampant depravity on the earth. And so Enoch, since it's an apocalyptic piece of literature, says, you want to know why God needs to sort of bring everything to a head and, and just be done with it? Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> so right. it goes into all that, you know. And the, so that's it, its rationale. Is it is it based on Enoch's supposed visions while while when he was sort of raptured up into the throne room? There, there's a lot of that in Enoch. Um, again, it, it it picks up on this theme of Enoch being taken in Genesis five by God, you know, to to be in God's presence, and so it naturally raises the question: Well, what what did he see? You know, what did, what did God tell him that he didn't tell anybody else? You know, that, that sort of thing. And so that gets picked up on in the book, especially, uh, you know, from – it's not just chapters 37 through 71, you, which is basically two or three really lengthy parables about what happened at Genesis 6. So it kind of repeats the first 36 chapters. But in the first 36, Enoch does see certain things. He, he sees what's going to happen. And then he, you know, again, gets to see why, you know, so he, he's privy to sort of God's perspective and, and essentially boardroom meetings as to what's going on and what we need to do about it and how this is going to play out, how, how things are going to wrap up. So you get a lot of that um, extraordinary sort of, you know, vision scaping uh, in these chapters of Enoch. Enoch goes on a number of heavenly journeys and sees you know, where the, the watchers are in prison now and how they got there and what's going to happen to them and the wicked. Are they going to go to the same place or a, maybe a less bad place? Or There's a whole lot of that, you know, the different levels, you know, of, of, of heaven, uh, different, you know, sort of places in the neighborhood. When you, when you get into God's house, the different, you know, rooms, the different, you know, sacred spaces that are there. So there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. And Enoch, of course, is an antediluvian uh, character. So when he's talking about the, the final judgment, is he talking about the flood or is he even, I don't know, prophesying uh, about a, a judgment after the flood? He's, a second he's going He's going after the flood because uh, he, he sees, like there's, there's one, it, it's, it's kind of unusual for Enoch because typically the main characters are Enoch, Noah, and then the Watchers, okay? 
but there's there are some scenes where you get Adam and Eve, but not but they're not back in the garden. That now they're in the in the new place, you know, the the world reborn, and so you know he it's definitely a, a forward looking thing, but even in the forward looking you know prophetic descriptions, they will play off. They sort of are mirror reversals, not only of of the world become corrupt, but they're also looking back to the way God originally wanted things in the garden, you know, the perfection of that. And so it, it, it transitions from what the world is, why it needs to be remade, destroyed and remade, and then what it's going to look like. So most of it is forward looking. More of my conversation with Dr. Michael Heiser when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Time once again to say hello to Colleen Forges, our nutritional therapist and the manager at the Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hey, Colleen, how are you? Great, Richard. How are you? I'm terrific, thank you. Healthy and happy uh, so far, knock on wood. Now, of course, uh, this is cold and flu season. There's coronavirus out there. That's an entirely other kettle of fish. But let's talk about cold and flu. What do we have for people? Today, I'm recommending a product called Ultravirex by Biotics Research. This product is designed to boost the immune function, and it includes a proprietary blend of vitamins, minerals, and botanicals. So it includes things like vitamin A, vitamin C, zinc, it also uses sage, some different types of mushrooms, black walnut, and wheatgrass. Oh, terrific. And how do you take that? In a capsule? Yes, it's in a, t- a capsule, and you can take one capsule three times a day. Fantastic. Ultravirex. All right. Thanks, Colleen. We'll talk again soon. Take care, Richard. To get your Ultravirex, go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the full script dispensary button. Remember, all orders receive 10% off, and orders of $50 or more shipped for free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. The author of A Companion to the Book of Enoch, Dr. Michael Heiser, is here. And for, for scholars who see a more sort of prosaic, uh, I guess, explanation of what this book is about, they think it's an allegory for something that happened to the, the Jewish priesthood, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a very common view. It, it's a, there's a scholar whose last name is Suter, S-U-T-E-R, who has you know, sort of championed that view. Uh, interestingly enough, Suter's work, which has been quite influential, uh, has recently gotten some pushback uh, in, in academic circles uh, that, that basically argues that he, is, he has fundamentally understood the bone in the book. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that happens in academia. You know, somebody comes along and writes a book or a dissertation and just blows up the whole you know, consensus. And that's, we're kind of in that, in that you know, arena right now. 
but you're correct. You know, some will say, well, the, the watchers, the bad guys, you know, that, that's a, that's a wicked priesthood or, or a, a sect of, of the priesthood that the writer didn't like. And so he's going to portray them as just being, you know, evil, you know, immoral, you know, just, just doing all the sorts of things that are contrary to what God wants done. And so they, they become the bad guys and, and the watchers become the, the means by which he gets to vent, you know, against those, those other, um, those other people, those other priests, probably rivals. So a, a polemic in, because I mean, yeah. what's happening in Israel or, or Jewish Palestine at this point, you have the Hellenization of, of uh, yeah. Palestine. So is it a reaction to that? Well, as you know, that once you get past, you know, 200 BC, again, moving forward, you get into the, the mid 150s, 160s, where you have, again, you have some rebellions, you have some wars of independence against Rome, which, you know, in, invariably is going to go back and forth. You know, sometimes you're going to have some periods where you have Jewish independence, and then they're going to lose that, and then they're going to sort of reach a kind of an uneasy, you know, truce where, yeah, you know, Rome will say, yeah, we're in charge, but we're basically not going to enforce a lot of this stuff on you because you people are just, you know, you, you create too much trouble. But, you know, it, it, it ultimately ends in 70 AD when, when Rome destroys the temple in Jerusalem. But in that period, scholar, the typical scholarly consensus would be you have different portions of Enoch being written and they could be, and, and I would say, you know, arguably are in, in part responsive and polemic to the circumstances of the day. Um, that is not to say though, that the people writing this, if you walked up to one of them and let's say, you know, you walked up to, to some guy and you said, yeah, I know why you're reading that. Cause you, you know, you just hate these guys, you know, whoever the enemy of the day is, but because you're doing that, you, you don't really believe that there are supernatural beings behind all this, right? I think the, you know, the scribe would look at you and say, well, of course I do. You know, they're, they're, these, the, the Romans here, they're just pawns, you know, in, in some bigger threat. And what, what I mean by this is even if it is sort of earthly motivated in places in the book, that should not be taken as an indication that the ancient writer did not believe in an active, you know, supernatural component behind human empire. I mean, that, that's very evident in a book like Daniel, which is a biblical book, you know, the prophet Daniel, uh, where you have uh, in Jan Daniel chapter 10, for instance, you have supernatural princes, the, the, the title they get are, are princes over nations. You know, there's the prince of Persia, prince of Greece, Michael, the archangel, again, fairly prominent in Enochian writings, is the prince of Israel. He's the guardian of Israel. And so as things play out on the human level, because we know that Persia and Greece, they had human empires and bureaucracies and armies and all this stuff. And so did the writer. So the writer's not denying that, but, but he's telegraphing the notion that, you know, behind all these things that we see, behind the misery that empires are causing us as a community, there's a greater supernatural intelligence that's motivating and manipulating these people to do what they do. In other words, evil is still cosmic. They're not dismissing human responsibility for evil, but it, there's also a cosmic you know, element to it, a cosmic component that these writers are going to affirm and express it in, in what they write in books like First Enoch and Daniel. So let's talk a little bit about the supernatural component, the watchers. 
mm-hmm. the fallen angels. What does First uh, Enoch tell us about uh, the, the Watchers? And let's say, for example, there, does it talk about their, their coming together on Mount Hermon and sort of scheming and plotting? It does, and I, we should we should get into some of the the context that that most people do not know, and that includes the academic community. Really, this, this is going to sound shocking, but it wasn't until 2010, okay, which isn't that long ago, that someone who specializes in cuneiform literature, uh, you know, ancient Sumerian Mesopotamian material, you know, we we know that there are you know, flood stories from Babylon and Sumer and all this stuff. Everybody knows that. I mean, you, you get that in high school today. But what what wasn't collected and, and published was this something this specific. You know, 2010, there was a scholar, Amar Anus, who's in Helsinki, decided, well, I, I want to do a study of, of the first four verses of Genesis 6, all that weird sons of God, you know, Nephilim, you know, half, you know, quasi supernatural and human offspring, all that weird stuff. Is there any stuff in the, in the Mesopotamian, Babylonian, Sumerian flood stories that aligns with that specifically? Okay. It wasn't until 2010 where all of that got published in one place. Now I, I've actually looked, cause this is a special interest of mine. I've only found two academic sources in any form that even mention the, the bad guys from the, the Mesopotamian version of this. So here's the backstory. In the Mesopotamian version of this, you have you have supernatural beings called the Apkalu. And the Apkalu are friendly to the Mesopotamian people, you know, their civilization, because they they gave them civilization. They 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 have a vested interest in humanity. Well one day the, the bigger gods say, you know, we're kind of sick of these humans. They make so much noise. They really don't, you know, do what we want them to do. Let's just wipe them out with a flood. And so the, the, the upper gods, you know, they make that decision. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to wipe out people, wipe out humans. And the Apkalu hear this and they're, they're like horrified. Like, what do you mean? I mean, we, we put a lot of work into these people. You can't do this. Of course, they're not going to win the debate. So what they decide to do is we need to preserve the knowledge that we've given humans so that after the flood, you know, when surely some of them are going to survive, they'll be able to, to restart again. You know, our knowledge won't be lost. And so you actually have cuneiform tablets that refer to Apkalu before the flood as you know, completely divine. Then after the flood, they are, quote, of, of human descent. Okay, so they're, they're, they're still around, but they're not the same. They're, they're part human, they're part, you know, supernatural, they're part divine. No, the human knowledge survives, Babylon resurfaces, becomes great again, and they're heroes. And the stuff they teach them are, you know, all the things that the Book of Enoch complains about. You actually have it listed. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect match. And so on the Babylonian side, you know, you have this, this is a wonderful event. Gilgamesh, for instance, is one of the lords of the Apkalu after the flood. He's also part human and part divine. I mean, and again, if you, you probably know this from high school now. You know, Gilgamesh is a familiar figure. Right, right. He's called the Lord of the Apkalo. He's also a giant. I mean, there's a recent, you know, cuneiform text discovered, you know, about Gilgamesh that has him as a giant. So, I mean, you have all the elements, what they taught people, you know, after the flood, we're part, you know, supernatural, part human, we're giant. I mean, you have every element of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, really 1 through 5, because on the, in the Israelite side of this, this is not a good thing. Okay, you know, 
it's it's not good that supernatural beings would transgress this boundary, you know, to cohabit with human women and you know whatever the motive. But this is bad because and look at what they teach us. You know, they teach us warfare and you know they break up you know social stability and idolatry and astrology and all this stuff. You know, so Genesis six one through five is is a polemic against the Mesopotamian material. But you don't really get any of that in the Genesis story. You, you get the basics, you don't, but you don't get any of the details. Well, in Enoch, you get all of it. You get every bit of it. In fact, if you go uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of the Giants, which is not part of the Book of Enoch, but it's, it has very Enochian content, it names Gilgamesh by name, along with three other giants you know, that, that are part of this. You, know, you get the Mount Hermon thing, and that's important because in Babylonian religion, Mount Hermon was the seat of authority for the gods, all the way back to Sumer. You know, it's this mountain. So you have all these story elements that that are in the Mesopotamian stuff, they're in the Enoch stuff, but in between in the Old Testament, you only get a little snapshot. And, and, and like I said, it wasn't until 2010 that scholarship, you know, produced this, published it, so that, you know, Old Testament scholars could interact with it. And it presents again, a coherent polemic picture, you know, of what's going on. So, you know, when you get on the other side of this, you know, with, with all of the Enochian material, it's very clear that they're targeting a supernatural worldview. They're targeting, you know, the, the, the claims of, of a competing, you know, religion, namely the Babylonian, you know, religion. This leaks into the New Testament because 2 Peter 2, verse 4 has the, quote, angels that sinned before the, the time of the flood in chains of gloomy darkness. They're locked away because they've been judged. They're, they're put in the abyss, in the pit. You don't get any of that in Genesis 6. You get it in Enoch, and that's exactly what happens in the Mesopotamian story. The Apkalu, who, who pull this off, are punished by Marduk, the high god who wanted the humans destroyed, and they're sent to the abyss you know, forever. I mean, everything is there. Everything is there. And, and you have, again, pieces of this in the Bible, but you only get the coherent whole in Enoch. And Enoch, because the, whoever wrote it, knows the backstory, knows the Mesopotamian you know, story. And, and he must have had access to Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian material because, again, he has Gilgamesh by name. There's lots of Mesopotamian stuff in Enoch and other intertestamental Jewish books. They had access to this material somehow. They're scribes. I mean, they, maybe they just went to a library. I mean, it could be that simple. But they have it, and they write about it, and they fill in all these gaps. And so you've got 36 chapters in the first book of what we call the Book of Enoch that elaborate on what happened and why, you know, why we had the flood and how this affected humanity in a terrible way and why humans now – are, are about to face the ultimate judgment. You know, they, it, so you, you get so many more details of, of the story. So yeah, you know, they're writing against this or that person, this or that, you know, circumstance of life, but they're marrying what they don't see as, as good. They're marrying what they see as bad to this supernatural narrative that goes all the way back to the Mesopotamian stuff. And the Book of Enoch also names names. It names the leader of yep. of these fallen angels, or uh, uh, Grigory. 
Yeah. See, this is this is kind of fascinating, and and this is also where you get the discussion of you know composite material because in parts of the Book of Enoch, the the leader is is Shemhaza, also known as you know in other parts of the book as Asael or Azazel. Now, I'm not completely convinced that these are different characters, but that is the consensus view. I, I have often wondered, I didn't put too much of this in the book, but I, I have wondered about um, ways to overlap the names, but that that's a little esoteric, you know, for, for our discussion now. But you get these apparently, you know, disparate names. So, you know, scholars argue, hey, there's two different versions of this within the book of Enoch itself. And one version has the watchers descending to Mount Hermon and they make a, they make a covenant with each other. And basically, you know, we're going to go down here. We're going to, and here's where it diverges. One, one story basically has them, you know, we, the, the world's a mess. We need to help, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so, so the, the, it's, it's viewed sort of not as a rebellious thing against God, but, but, you know, we, we ought to go down here and try to try to fix some things here. And in, in the process of doing it, they get, you know, seduced by human women and it's, it's all an accident. In the other version, it's like intentional. We're going to show God how this should be done. We're going to raise up our own, our own populations here. You know, we're going to fix it that way. But it, it's a high-handed, intentional transgression. And that's the version you get most in the Book of the Watchers, that this is a, this is a crime, Whereas other parts of the book, it's a little fuzzier. You know, it, it, it sounds a little more innocent. So right. again, it contributes, you know, to this notion of you have two hands and two authors and two leaders and all this kind of stuff. Again, I'm not completely convinced of that, but I can I can see how how that could certainly be the case. But you know, there you go. So you've got two decisions, and Enoch gets drawn into this. Uh, in, again, in the in the early narrative, because once they're discovered, which wouldn't be hard, <laughs> you know, like, like, do we think God isn't going to notice what we're doing here, you know, in the fallout? Okay. But once, once it all sort of hits the fan, they are rounded up. God says, okay, you know, this is terrible. You know, there, there are actually a few archangels that, that re- report it to God, you know, Hey, have you taken a look at the earth, you know, recently? I mean, look at what's going on here. It's just chaos. And so God says, okay, we need to take care of that. Go down there and wipe out the giants you know, wipe out the Nephilim and it goes by, they go by other names too. get rid of them and, you know, take the ones who offended, take the, 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 the transgressing watchers and put them in jail, you know, put them in prison you know, until the time of the end. I, I, we're going to clean this mess up. And so they do, you know, Michael and Uriel and some of these other archangels do this. And then the watchers are like, well, this, the abyss sucks. You know, like we don't want to be here. <laughs> you know, we're, we're sorry. And, and so they, they, you know, get together and, well, who, you know, somebody, is there somebody available like to run interference with us before God, take a message to God that we're sorry. And, and so we're not hold, told how, but they, they decide, well, God really likes Enoch. He really likes that guy. So let, you know, let's ask him. And so somehow they, they contact Enoch. Hey, will you, will you take a message to God and tell him we're sorry? You know, we, we're, we've repented. He was right. We should have never done this. And, and, can we get out? And so Enoch does. He takes the message, you know, to God. And then there's this whole scene about, you know, Enoch's transport, you know, to, to where God is and through all these different levels of, of heaven and and whatnot, o- only to get the an- a pretty simple answer, like, forget it. Tell him to forget it. 
<laughs> it's just no. The answer is no. And so he has to go back and report that. Now, you know, in some parts of the book, this happens in a dream. Other parts, it sounds like it, it's a, it's more of a, a supernatural transport kind of thing. But that's the story. Enoch goes back. He is the the emissary, the mediator, and he has to descend, you know, into the abyss, and report to them. Nope, God said no. You're you're basically here until, you know, the quote end of days. Now that even that is gets a little fuzzy because does that mean forever, or does that mean that well, when the end of days sort of starts to happen, are you going to get out and then, you know, we'll kind of see where your heart's at and and it, if it's bad, then then you're going to finally get destroyed or or whatever. You know, there's this little, are you going to get out and then we'll see if you if you help or if you make things worse again. But they're there, they're stuck, and that's the story. You know, and this is Enoch's explanation for why you know, the end is near and, and who, the, who the players are, who the characters are, what their history is, all that sort of thing. Right. Uh, the Genesis 6 is a little light on details in terms yeah. of the actual encounter between the fallen angels and oh, the, yeah. uh, the daughters of men. I think it says something like commingling. I mean... Uh, it says it took, took them... The sons of God took... Nasim, which can either be women or wife, I mean, it, you know, six of one and a half dozen of another, but it, it might, the distinction might be important. Right. I but mean, they, they take women, you know, of whoever they chose, and the, they, the women bore children to them, and they, they turn out to be the Nephilim, the mighty men, so on and so forth. But does Enoch give us more detail? Were these women taken by force, and in, in effect raped, or was there a deception there? If you do this we'll, for us, we'll do this for you. Was there kind of an agreement? How did it happen? It, it, it's, not, it's not completely consistent uh, there. In, in, in the one version you know, of Enoch, the, the notion that the sons of God, the watchers, are sort of overcome by the beauty of, of women. And so... It, it, you could say, well, then, then it, it's clearly not, you know, rape. But we don't, we don't really get the women's perspective on it. <laughs> but you know, we, we do get this sense that that the the supernatural beings are seduced. Well, is that because the, the, the women actively tried to do this, or again, is it more passive? Like, oh wow, you know, look look at how beautiful they are. Let, let's go get some of those women. You know, so I, I don't think it's really consistent in in its portrayal. Uh, you you don't have you don't really have what you would sort of think of as a, a violent, you know, a series of violent criminal acts, but it's more ambiguous. I mean, you can, you sort of have to read between the lines and the question is, well, which, which direction should we read? So it's kind of like that, you know, there it's, I don't want to know. I don't really want to say it's neutral. I I, I don't think that's quite an adequate word uh, for it, but you could read it as this was an undesired thing on the part of the women, or you, you could you could read it like, well, what are we supposed to do here? You know, we can't really resist, and, you know, why not? You know, you, you could read it that way, too. It, it just depends where you're at, you know, different parts of the book. Do we know who the first woman to bear these half-breed giants or sons uh, was? Do we know her yeah, identity? We're not, we're, not, we're not given her name, but but it's, it's interesting you should mention that, because there's another, there's another text... Uh, it's called the Genesis Apocryphon, which is set at the same period and has the same themes. Okay, so it's it's the, the time when the Watchers are doing their thing, and it, it's a conversation between Noah's parents. <laughs> so we've we've got 
uh, you know, Noah's father is named in the biblical account Lamech, and then his wife is not, you know, Noah's mom is not, but in this text she is, and her name is, is you can either spell it or pronounce it Bitanosh or Batanosh. And so they actually have a conversation where, where Noah's dad goes to his wife, you know, without getting, you know, too graphic here, and says, you know, I know you're pregnant, and I'm, I'm just kind of having my doubts here. Like, are, are you sure that this is my kid or is it one of theirs, you know, one of the watchers? And she gets insulted. Like, well, don't you remember the other night when, you know, this or that? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's interesting because when Noah's born in other texts, like you know, the, one of the other you know, books of Enoch, he's not a normal kid. <laughs> I mean, he looks a little bit different. You know, he's got light coming out of his eyes and shining hair and, You know, so there was this, what it tells you is there was this tradition that Noah himself was the product of what's going on in Genesis 6. And you say, well, why would, why would anybody, A, care? Why would anybody sort of go down that, that path? And it's because it becomes part of the, of the debate or the, the discussion of how in the world do we get descendants of the Nephilim after the flood? Like if the flood was supposed to wipe everything out except for Noah and his family. And then when you get to to the book of Numbers, which is, you know, the the fourth book of the Torah, and you get to Numbers 13, 32, and 33, where Moses, you know, sends in 12 spies to, you know, reconnoitre the land uh, that they're going to go and, you know, and take the land of Canaan. And the spies come back and say, man, the place is awesome. It's everything that we thought it would be, but we have a problem. You know, the Anakim are there, and they're like really tall. The Anakim, and it says in Numbers 13, 32, and 33, the, Ana, the Anakim are from the Nephilim. So we have, we have a, a, a clan, you know, a population scattered throughout the land called Anakim that are from the Nephilim. And everybody, every, it's, it's an age-old question. Right. There's actually three or four, you know, ways to, or not, I, don't, I won't say ways to answer it, but three or four trajectories that, both in ancient times and modern times, you know, that scholars have proposed. And this is one of them, that Noah was essentially part of this and essentially a carrier, you know, that that sort of thing. I mean, we would use that language today because we know things like, you know, we're thinking of things like genetics and the, the biblical writers, ancient writers aren't thinking any of that. But nevertheless, they still have a genealogical connection. And this is why you get this talk about Noah uh, there's another text, there's a Targumic text, a rabbinic text that has Noah being you know, a giant, like really, really tall. Again, to telegraph the same point, this becomes a, a thing you can refer to. Well, the rabbis taught that Noah was part of this, and that's how we got you know, Nephilim after the flood, and the Anakim, and all these other guys. But why would he so have been chosen by God to, why would he have been chosen by God as supposedly one of the pure bloods, the last right. of the See, pure they, bloods? See there, there you go. You know that, that that's the comeback, and and the issue is, you know, if you if you want to get down to the nut, into the nuts and bolts, you know, you're referencing referencing Genesis six, you know, right around you know verse nine, where, you know, Noah was a righteous man; he's blameless in his generation. Now the the key is, what does the word generation mean? The word used in Genesis six nine, because this is the obvious comeback. We think of generation as lineal descent, which, which would mean, well, you, you couldn't possibly have been a, car- a carrier. The word here is door in Hebrew. It is normally, that's a key word, normally not used of genealogical descent. 
There is one place in the Torah where it is. Okay. Normally the word for genealogical descent is toledot. These are the generations of. That's a Hebrew word for toledot. So this is not that word. This would mean like, this would be a generation like uh, an era, like the generation of the 60s. Right. That doesn't mean all the people were related. Non-familial, right. It's, uh, right, yeah. it's non-familial. So that, you have the non-familial word here, and so for the one side, this opens the door to, to Noah being part of this. But the other side will say, well, you know, there are occasions where the word is used of genealogical descent. So, you know, and plus, it, you know, if this was the case, how could, you know, I mean, God knows better than this. Why would he pick, you know? So that's the heart of, of that, you know, proposed answer. That's where the debate, you know, centers on, you know, how to take this term and, and you know, proceed with the ramifications on one side or the other. How do you feel about the the, uh, the book of Enoch, uh, in particular, uh, the um, the book of Watchers, being, I don't know if conflate is the right word, but being associated with the modern-day UFO alien abduction phenomenon, I, uh, where, you know, yeah. the, the, it mirrors this alien-human hybrid program? Well, you know, it's... It's a better source than Sumerian stuff. <laughs> you know? uh, what I mean by that is that at, at least there's a narrative you could point to because a lot of the ancient alien stuff, um, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to spend any real time, you know, picking on, on Zechariah Sitchin, but this whole mythology about the Anunnaki and Nibiru and because uh, you, you, if you go back and look at the, the, these texts and you can actually do this online, like I have a very boring video. On, on one of my websites, you know, sitchinisrong.com, okay? A, 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 an inflammatory title, but hey, it's 20 years old. Maybe I didn't know better back then. <laughs> but I have this really boring video of, of Mike going to the, it's a screen capture video, so you can watch me do it. And, and the whole point is you can do it yourself. You can imitate me. Where I type in the term, the Sumerian spelling for Anunnaki on the electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature. That, that they have a website. You click the button, it gives you all the places where Anunnaki are mentioned in the tablets, and then you hit the little TR next to each line of, of, of a tablet and you get an English translation. There are zero instances where the Anunnaki are associated with Nibiru in any way. Zero. Goose egg. It doesn't exist. Okay, and, and a lot of other points that, you know, in this case, Sitchin you know, has about the, the Anunnaki, they literally don't exist in the tablets. It's not like my interpretation differs from his. You know, you can't have an interpretation of something that doesn't exist. Okay, it just, it isn't there. But Enoch, okay, Enoch's actually better in this regard because at least you can point to, oh, look at that. You know, you got you know, supernatural beings and humans. So I can see why people would gravitate toward a book like Enoch or, or try to use, you know, Genesis 6 in, in this sort of way. I mean, there, there are lots of, lots of other texts, you know, that show up, you know, in contactee literature, you know, contactee episodes and abduction episodes and all that sort of stuff. So, again, I, I think what a lot of these things are about in terms of messaging is this notion of, you know, we, we want an explanation for not – not necessarily human corruption. Typically, the UFO narrative has a positive spin on it, but they gravitate toward this, these kinds of, of passages because people want to believe that they're an explanation for 
technological achievements in the ancient world, you know, things like that. So it, it gives them sort of a toehold through the Nephilim and, and supernatural ancestry of some kind that, that surely, you know, that we were visited by aliens and they came here and, and they, they mixed with, with us and produced our civilizations and, and whatnot. So a, a, a text like Enoch is, is good fodder if you're looking for that kind of explanation to those kinds of questions. Um, so I think that's why it gets picked up on a lot. Michael, how do we get a copy of A Companion to the Book of Enoch? Go up to Amazon.com. That's the easiest place. Uh, just put in my last name, H-E-I-S-E-R and Enoch, and you're going to run into it. Uh, if you found any of my other books, again, Amazon works nicely enough that you're, you're going to be able to find it even if you can't spell my name or misspell it. But uh, Amazon's the place to go. Uh, they can also go to the episode notes and click on uh, the book title, and that'll take them there as well, The Book of Enoch. Michael, I've enjoyed this uh, immensely. It's, um, uh, it's been great talking to you. I, I, I learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to share a few details about an upcoming episode. One tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo helps keep me pain-free, energized, and mentally focused. And I'm sleeping so much better since I started taking ESS-60 back in November. ESS-60 is the consumable form of C60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize winning chemists in the 1990s. ESS-60 is a mega antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. Check out the Paris study, a peer-reviewed scientific study online, where ESS-60 suspended in olive oil was fed to rats. The rats fed ESS-60 lived almost twice their normal lifespan. I can't sit here and tell you I'm gonna to live to be 112, but I'm 56 and I haven't felt this youthful, energized, and pain-free since I was in my 20s. ESS-60 from C60 Evo. If you want to discover the benefits of this amazing miracle molecule for yourself, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link for c60evo.com. And don't forget to use the code RS1SPEC when ordering, and you'll receive an additional 5% off. ESS-60, the miracle molecule from C60 Evo. It's changed my life. Discover what it can do for you. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to cure, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, a Canadian man recounts his five, count them five, near-death experiences. When I saw myself lying on that slab and saw those people that I'd never seen before in my life standing around me, I started to research that a little bit more, and it wasn't until maybe 10 years later that I was watching a documentary on Discovery Channel, and it was by a Dr. Carmen Voltier out of Calgary, University of Calgary, on Egypt and Egyptology. And in one of the chambers that she was working in or filming in, I saw the exact same slab that she featured in that documentary where I was lying on. 
Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.